When I was deciding on a story to tell for the very first installment of the California Dreaming Vacation series, my husband had one that he wanted me to cover, but I had pretty much already had one that jumped out at me right away when we had chosen Florida as our destination. However, I told him that I would do his story, which involves football, as a bonus. So, here it is. Truth be told, I'm not much of a football person, but my husband is, and he enjoys watching football. He plays fantasy football. He plays Madden on his Xbox, and he's a volunteer coach for the city's flag football league. And all the things that I do know about football is because of him and the years that we've been married. So for him, I gladly bring you today's bonus mini episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Sean Taylor. Sean Michael Maurice Taylor was born April 1st, 1983 in Miami, Florida to parents Pete Taylor, the police chief of Florida City, and Donna Juner. They separated before Sean was born, and by the age of three, his parents had officially divorced. For the first 10 years of his life, Sean lived with his mother and his great-grandmother and two half-sisters and one half-brother. As a child, Sean was described as a constant ball of energy. He was always interested in everything that was going on around him, and he never seemed to be able to sit still. He always tagged along with his siblings, especially his older brother. He was very close to his mother, and despite being the youngest in the family, he was fiercely protective of her and his siblings. His dad was always in his life. Even though his parents were no longer together, he was always there for Sean. So when Sean turned 10, his mother became very sick, and he and his siblings were split apart as they were sent to live with their respective fathers. This marked a change in Sean's overall disposition as the energetic, happy-go-lucky child that he had been. Being apart from his mother's, sisters, and brother devastated him. It was at that point, it became a goal of his to somehow, some way, reunite his mother and her children so they could all be together again under the same roof. And by the time he was in high school, he decided that the way that he was going to do that was he was going to make a name for himself playing football. At Florida's Gulliver Prep, he was a star running back and safety, and it would be his father who he would credit for honing his gifts for the game. With a rigorous daily training regimen, workouts that could happen for Sean at any time, anywhere his dad would say, with running and stamina building being a huge part of his training. Sean's friend would say that there was no better, stronger, more consistent motivator than his dad. Sean helped Gulliver Prep win Florida Class 2A state championship in 2000, setting a state record that year with 44 touchdowns that season. Even though Sean mostly lived a pretty comfortable life in a middle-class neighborhood and attended a very prestigious private school, the rougher neighborhoods were very close by. The thing that kept Sean out of trouble, aside from the fact that his dad was a police chief, was keeping his focus on sports. He did the best that he could to keep towards the positive things he was working for without being a pushover or easily bullied. 
but leaving the area that he grew up in was never going to be something Sean was wanting to do. Miami was his home, and he was going to stay there. It would also be where Sean would attend college. He was recruited to play at the University of Miami to play safety for the Hurricanes. He was also a member of the Hurricanes track and field team where he competed in the 100-meter and 200-meter events. In the 2001 football season with the Hurricanes, Sean was one of only four freshmen to play for the team, and he easily carved out a solid place for himself in Miami's secondary and nickel-and-dime defensive schemes. During the season, Sean was named Big East Special Teams Player of the Week for his performance against the Pittsburgh Panthers. The Hurricanes won the national championship in 2001, their fifth since 1983. 2002 marked his first season as a starter. He finished third on the team in tackles with 85, 53 of those being solo. He broke apart 15 passes, intercepted four, forced one fumble, blocked one kick, and returned one punt for a touchdown. He led all Miami defensive backs in tackles, interceptions, and passes broken up, and had a career-high 11 tackles, two of those solo, and intercepted two passes in the Fiesta Bowl loss to Ohio State. In 2003, in his third and final year at the University of Miami, he finished a historic season that culminated in a bevy of honors and awards. He was named a unanimous first-team All-American, the Big East Conference Defensive Player of the Year, and a finalist for the Jim Thorpe Award, which is given to the nation's best defensive back. He led the Big East Conference and ranked first nationally with interceptions with 10, tying the record for interceptions in a season with former Hurricane Benny Blades. Taylor also finished first in tackles with 77, 57 of those solo. He intercepted two passes in a 28-14 win over Pittsburgh, at the same time having limited All-American receiver Larry Fitzgerald to only three receptions for 26 yards. He returned interceptions for an average of 18.4 yards, including a 67-yard touchdown return at Boston College, a 50-yard scoring run back at Florida State, and a 44-yard scoring run back at Rutgers University. While in college, Sean also started dating Jackie Garcia, a University of Miami soccer player that he had had a crush on since he was in high school. It became one of his goals to learn how to speak Spanish because she was Cuban. However, his dad would say that he wasn't really pulling it off that well. As a side note, Jackie is also the niece of actor Andy Garcia. After three years at the University of Miami, Sean declared for the draft. Former Miami teammate Clinton Portis, who was by then on the Washington Redskins, insisted to the coaches that they go after Sean in the draft. The self-proclaimed hardest hitter in the draft did not attend it, choosing instead to stay in Miami with his family to celebrate there, watching it unfold from the comfort of his hometown. And... With the fifth overall pick in the 2004 NFL Draft, the Washington Redskins did indeed pick Sean Taylor. He told his family, everything is going to change for us now. However, Sean opting out of attending the draft would kind of foreshadow in a way 
the path his career would take as somewhat of a nonconformist. But it would not be in the ways that he would be portrayed in the media. Much of his choices, though maybe not the wisest of choices, would often be misconstrued or made out to be more than what they were meant to be. In 2004, there were only four players chosen by the Redskins in the draft. Following the draft, all new picks are required to attend the Rookie Symposium, which is a four-day event that has been held each July in San Diego since 1996. They hold seminars on such topics as personal finance, personal conduct, football operations, security, success in the NFL, domestic issues, player development, life skills, substance abuse, media policies, and life after football. All draft picks are required to attend, and there is currently a $50,000 fine for failing to go to that event. When Sean found out what the symposium was all about, he decided to ditch the event and return to Miami. And at that time, the fine was $25,000, which was levied against him. Former Redskins coach Joe Gibbs said of Sean, he kind of charted his own path in life. You were going to have to earn your way with him. He wasn't going to be someone who just came in and immediately would be friends with you, or as a coach, would have a close relationship with you or be willing to do whatever you wanted him to do. He was his own man. Sean was quickly turned off by the media early on too, after a teammate's prank at rookie camp when he was hit in the face with the shaving cream pie. He didn't like the media getting a laugh from him. Former Washington Post reporter Jason LaCanfora said of Sean, that was it. Who are you guys laughing at me? From that moment, the media would only be a detriment. They will never get to know the real me, so why put on this fake facade and give you some BS quotes when you know I don't want to talk to you and I know I don't want to talk to you and what you're going to get out of me isn't going to help you do your job, so F it. And the drama didn't stop there. The negotiations for his rookie contract were tense as he fired three of his agents, and the media was not letting up, especially since he wasn't really talking to them anymore. Negative press began swirling around him before he had even played a single down for the Redskins. Ultimately, it wouldn't really matter because when he stepped onto the field for the first Redskins preseason game that year, he was easily the best player on the field ending his series out there with an interception. The Redskins owner immediately knew he was looking at a future pro bowler and a future Hall of Famer in Sean. If a play were drawn up to be a good play, Sean made it a great play. He would make it a turnover. He'd guarantee to make it better than anyone watching him could have imagined. As Coach Gibbs would say of Sean, God made certain people to play football for sure. He was one of them. The one thing Sean wasn't made for was being away from home for more than he had to be. He would be so motivated to win because teams that play on Sundays have Monday off, and if the Redskins would win, they would also get Tuesday off. So on Sunday nights, 
he would be on the next flight to Miami, and if his team won, he would have that extra day to be home. Until he would decide to find his own place in Virginia, he stayed with former University of Miami teammate Clinton Portis, and despite the distance between them, he was still very much wanting to continue his relationship with Jackie, who was still attending school in Miami. So whenever she was in the Washington DC area with the soccer team, he would spend as much time as he could with her, often until it was curfew time for her team, as well as coming in the morning, really early, where she was staying, before he had team workouts, just so he can spend as much time as possible. Eventually, all of these late nights caught up with him. When he missed Redskins team workouts one morning, come to find out, he had been arrested the night before after one of his teammates' birthday parties on suspicion of drunk driving. Sean told the officer who pulled him over that he had only had one drink, but he refused to take the breathalyzer test. So he was given a variety of field sobriety tests and was subsequently taken into custody. He was released, however, in plenty of time to make it to practice that day, but he did not want to show up at the facility because he didn't want to deal with the media. The drunk driving charges against him were eventually dismissed by the judge. In the spring of 2005, the Redskins held the Organized Team Activities, or OTAs, but Sean stayed in Miami again. They are voluntary, but they're kind of a big deal, and according to his offensive coordinator at the time, they did have an understanding, and he would check in on Sean on a regular basis and he was trusted to keep himself healthy and out of trouble. He was spending time with his grandmother, but while he was in Miami that spring, there was news that Sean had been involved in an assault that involved two ATVs that were stolen from him. It seems that some guys from the neighborhood he lived in stole some ATVs, and he knew exactly who they were because other people from the neighborhood were calling Sean and telling him, hey, these guys have your ATVs, they're riding them up and down the streets, making no secret of the fact that they were in possession of them. Sean called the police and made a report, but it seems that little or no action was taken. These guys were having the time of their lives riding Sean's ATVs around, and he grew tired of waiting for the police to take care of it, so he made the decision to handle it himself. He was accused of brandishing a gun and hitting one of the thieves during the confrontation. A few hours later, they came back and confronted Sean again by shooting at his home with an automatic weapon. Sean ended up facing felony assault charges, yet no one else was ever charged in the incident. True to form, Sean never spoke to the media about his arrest and assault charges, and he never gave his side of the story. So, the media did with it as they pleased. He wasn't the type of person to go to the media and try to set the record straight. So everyone on the outside looking in took what the media reported at face value. That Sean was a thug. That he was violent because of this assault charge. He's reckless off the field. And it was all believable because he was such a tremendous force on the field. As he's reckless when he plays football too. That 2005 season was looking good for the Redskins. They had their sights set to make it to the playoffs, and hopefully, of course, the Super Bowl. At this point, 
They had not made it to the playoffs since the 1999-2000 season. Sean and Clinton Portis were looking to make a splash on the national stage. And so they, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to wear striped, mismatching socks on game day. And their coach is scratching his head like, why are these two guys wearing striped socks? Even the announcers took notice that Clinton and Sean were, quote, expressing their individuality, unquote, by going rogue with the wardrobe change, which resulted in a fine. Their offensive coordinator, not amused by the stunt, confronted the two of them about it, I imagine quite angrily, and on the following week, Sean took 40 to 50 pieces of tape and wrapped the pieces all around his face mask. He was again confronted by his offensive coordinator who was again pissed off. He got the equipment manager to take the face mask off his helmet and put another one on. And the offensive coordinator placed the taped up one in his locker. And so, what does Sean do next? He tapes up the new one and gets on the field. Face mask re-taped up all over again and find all over again. All of his antics aside, Sean seemingly had this incredible awareness of the game, of where the ball was and where it was going to be. That year, in the game against the Eagles, the one that they needed to win to get a wild card spot, late in the game, Sean recovered a wild fumble and ran it in for a touchdown, securing that slot. They would go on to face the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in that wildcard game, and he did it again. Another amazing wild fumble recovery returned for a touchdown. Unfortunately for Sean, he would not go on to finish out that game against Tampa Bay, as he would be ejected for spitting in the face of Buccaneers player Michael Pittman as the two got in each other's face after a three-yard scramble by the quarterback. Pittman did hit Sean on his face mask, but referees decided that there would be no penalty against Pittman. Sean would later claim that he did not spit in Pittman's face, but upon review of the tape, it was pretty obvious that he had, and he was subsequently fined again $17,000, an amount that equals the bonus each Redskins player would have earned in the first round of the NFC playoffs. The Washington Redskins did win that game 17-10, but would go on to lose in the divisional round of the NFC playoffs. Four months later, on May 12, 2006, Sean and Jackie welcomed to the world a baby girl, given her mother's name, Baby Jackie. One month later, he was made to answer to the felony assault charges over those ATVs. Sean managed to reach a deal with prosecutors, and they agreed to drop the felony charges against him. He pleaded no contest to two misdemeanors in the assault case and received 18 months of probation. The plea also earned him another fine from the NFL, but it did manage to keep his football career intact. Additionally, he was ordered to speak publicly about the importance of education at 10 Miami schools as well as contribute $1,000 for scholarships to each of those schools. With that, and a new baby to care for, it seemed Sean was ready to move on, grow up, 
and embrace his role as a father, as well as his role on the team. He refocused on his family and his career, and his team and his coach 100% supported him, giving him a clean slate as they were going into the 2006 season. Off the field, Sean definitely calmed down and shaped up his behavior, but on the field, he was thriving, playing better than ever. That season, he would go on to earn his way to the Pro Bowl, and the world was beginning to get a glimpse of what the real Sean Taylor was like. By 2007, Sean was accomplishing the goals he had set out for himself. He was able to get that family home that would be the place where all of his family and all of his siblings could be whenever they wanted. But with the birth of his daughter, he and Jackie were entertaining the idea of moving to Virginia full-time so they could be close to him for the entire year. During that 2007 season, Sean was on pace to mark this as the best stretch of his career. Not even halfway through the season, he had already racked up five interceptions. But his season would come to an abrupt end in a game against the Eagles. Following a tackle, Sean limped off the field, rendering him out indefinitely for the season with a sprained knee. In a seemingly odd coincidence, on the same day as he injured his knee, Sean's mother reported an attempted burglary at the family's Miami home. When he got the news, he was in the training room at the Redskins facility, and he immediately grew concerned for the safety of his family, his girlfriend, and of course, his baby daughter. According to news reports, somebody pried open a window, ransacked through some personal belongings, and tried to break into Sean's safe located in his bedroom. They collectively decided that they were going to move out of that house as they had no idea who did this and they felt like Sean was specifically targeted. So as the rest of the Washington Redskins headed to Tampa Bay for the next game, Taylor, nursing a sprained knee, headed home to Miami. Sean and Jackie started talking about making that move to Virginia, leaving all this in Miami behind and having some place new to start, some place safe for his family. As Jackie would describe, the talks they had seemingly brought an overwhelming sense of renewed peace for the two of them. They looked forward to a new start in life without all this drama swirling around them in Miami. But for the young couple, they would never find the peace they planned on seeking. In the early morning hours on Monday, November 26, Sean was shot by some intruders inside his Miami home. Police were summoned to the home around 1.45 in the morning and Sean was airlifted to a local hospital. Sean and Jackie were awakened in the middle of the night by some noises that they heard in the living room. Sean quietly locked the bedroom door and retrieved a small machete he kept under his bed for protection. Before he could exit the bedroom to investigate what was going on in the living room, the door was kicked in and the intruders fired two shots into the bedroom, one striking Sean in the upper leg, the other hit the wall. Now I clearly remember when this event took place, and I remember thinking that 
with a gunshot wound to the upper leg, with his girlfriend having been there, being able to contact 911 in a timely manner, that this would be something that Sean would eventually be able to recover from. And sadly, I remember being somewhat nonchalant about him being shot, especially in the upper thigh, like, that's totally survivable, right? Not so much if that bullet happens to perforate the femoral artery. That changes things a lot. Throughout that day, Sean remained in critical condition. Although he had been in the intensive care unit following several hours of surgery at Jackson Memorial Hospital, doctors were encouraged late in the day when Sean was responsive to simple commands. According to then Redskins Vice President of Football Operations, Vinny Serrato, he stated, he was very responsive to the doctor's request to squeeze his hand and to show facial expressions. So they were getting very happy about that. They told us to hope for a miracle. And I think the positive news we got was extremely good news. According to an attorney who spoke to the media on behalf of the family, he stated that Sean had lost a significant amount of blood because the bullet damaged his femoral artery, and doctors were extremely worried about the lack of blood flow to the brain. I wanted to stop here for a minute and talk about Sean's injury. Obviously, I'm not a physician, so I wanted to know more about what it meant to have this kind of injury that Sean sustained to his femoral artery. According to trauma experts, the type of wound he suffered during that home invasion burglary is among the most difficult to fix. Even in someone like Sean, a young, healthy, professional athlete with access to the best trauma care available, a gunshot wound that tears through the main artery of the upper leg and abdomen can result in very rapid, very massive blood loss. The human body has two femoral arteries that branch off about mid-abdomen and into each thigh. They are among the body's biggest vessels, and where they are located in the groin and upper thigh area, they are about as big around in diameter as an index finger. Stopping the blood loss that is flowing from a bullet wound in that region can be extremely difficult, especially if the injury is close to the groin, as it would be very hard to put a tourniquet around it. An injury of this type essentially means a person is likely to lose all of the blood in their whole body within five minutes. It is this rapid blood loss that prevents oxygen from reaching the brain and vital organs that leads to death. So even in the youngest, healthiest of bodies, the organs can quickly become compromised so quickly that the body just cannot go on anymore. This massive blood loss sets into motion a series of events that are rapid and devastating. Once a person's blood pressure falls dangerously low, the body tries as much as it can to get blood to the vital organs. At the same time, the body's temperature begins to drop below normal. Once all of these dynamics begin to happen, it's often referred to as the triad of death. And then the physiological injury becomes so severe that the human body is no longer able to overcome the damage. So this is the injury that Sean had, a bullet wound to his femoral artery. 
Doctors were being very guarded about their prognosis, as, according to the family spokesperson, they were being a little skeptical about whether he might make it or whether the injury may have caused some permanent brain damage. In this break-in, the one in which Sean was shot happened only eight days after the other home invasion had been reported. Police began investigating, sifting through the evidence of the two incidents to see if there were any correlation between the two. Nothing appeared to have been stolen in either incident. In the early morning hours of Tuesday, November 27th, Sean succumbed to his injuries. He was pronounced dead at 3.35 in the morning. He simply was unable to overcome the damage done by the massive blood loss caused by the bullet wound to his upper leg. He was 24 years old. This attempted home invasion robbery suddenly turned into a homicide investigation. According to the autopsy report, the bullet that killed Sean first tore through his right leg and then his left and came from a 9mm handgun. The bullet perforated the soft tissue and muscles of the right groin and right femoral artery, severely damaging this crucial pathway for blood flow. It tore through the muscles of his upper thigh, exited the leg, and entered into his left thigh. Three days later, the Miami-Dade Police Department announced that they had arrested not one, but five men in connection with Sean's shooting death. According to police, they had more than one confession in the case, and all five were going to be charged with murder. The suspects were identified as 20-year-old Venjay Hunt, 17-year-old Eric Rivera, 17-year-old Jason Scott Mitchell, 18-year-old Charles Kendrick Lee Wardlow, and 16-year-old Timmy Brown. A key factor in the arrest in the case were tips from the community. The investigation revealed that the suspects knew that Sean was the homeowner, but mistakenly thought the house was empty. According to police, they did not go looking to kill anyone. They were expecting a residence that was not occupied, so murder or shooting someone was not their initial motive, that their primary motive was to go in there and steal the contents of the house. Okay, that might be true, but why bring the weapon if you were expecting the homeowners to not be there? I don't think that they were necessarily hoping to confront Sean Taylor, but you don't need a gun to burglarize a house. And not only that, remember how I said earlier that Sean had locked the bedroom door to retrieve his machete and the intruders kicked in the door before Sean was able to exit the bedroom to investigate the noises he and Jackie heard coming from the living room? Well, if the intruders suddenly became aware of the fact that the residence wasn't unoccupied, they could have retreated. They could have turned around and went right back out the way they came, but no, they didn't do that. They had the opportunity to flee the scene, but they didn't. Instead, they chose to confront the occupants of the home as soon as they realized someone was there, and they did so with a loaded weapon, obviously ready to use it. So I'm not buying the they-weren't-looking-to-kill-anyone story. The fact that they broke down the bedroom door and opened fire wholly contradicts that. But anyway, that's just my opinion.
So how is it that all of this came to be in the first place? What were these five young men, not even men, some still kids, how did they come to find themselves breaking into Sean's home and shooting him, ultimately killing him? I will tell you this, it wasn't random. Sean was targeted. He was targeted not only because he was a wealthy NFL player, he was targeted also because he was a kind and generous and giving person. In the fall of 2007, one of the suspects, Jason Mitchell, had been a guest at Sean's home for four days while attending a birthday celebration for one of Sean's sisters, Sasha Johnson. He was a friend of her boyfriend's. During those four days, Mitchell hung out with Sean, who had even paid the guy $300 to help him mow the lawn and clean the pool deck. It was at this birthday celebration that he saw Sasha open a gift from Sean, a purse that had $10,000 cash tucked inside of it. Mitchell also saw Sean give the same amount of cash as a gift to another one of his siblings. According to prosecutors, it was Mitchell who cooked up the idea to go back to Sean's house and burglarize it. It was he who broke into the home the first time, the day that Sean had sprained his knee at the Eagles game, and Mitchell had came away empty-handed as he was unsuccessful in his attempt to pry open Sean's safe. So he decided to return to the home but the second time he came with four friends. He drove from his residence in Fort Myers along with his accomplices, believing that Sean was away in Tampa Bay that Sunday for a game against the Buccaneers. They decided to break into the home in the early morning hours that Monday, but they were surprised to find him home, nursing that sprained knee of his. If these morons had done their homework, they would have known that. The first defendant to stand trial would be Eric Rivera in October of 2013. By that time, he was 23 years old. Jackie took the stand on the first day, fighting back tears throughout most of her testimony as she recounted the horrifying night that intruders forced their way into their Palmetto Bay home. She testified that she and Sean had went to bed around 10 p.m., with their 18-month-old daughter right by their side. Sometime after one in the morning, Sean woke her up. He had heard a noise. He asked her where the machete was and she whispered to him by the bed. She said he proceeded towards the bedroom door while she tried to call 911. She heard a really loud noise, like a gunshot, then a scream. She thought it was Sean. She was unable to see who shot him as she was hiding under the covers with her daughter calling 911. After a few moments, she came out from under the covers and slowly made her way toward Sean, who was gasping for air and unable to speak. She testified that she saw him lying on the floor face down and that she saw all this blood everywhere. She frantically tried to comfort him at the same time grabbing a towel to try and stop the bleeding. When officers arrived, she ran to let them in the gated home. Paramedics soon rushed Sean to the hospital. Before going there herself, she raced to her mother's house 
to drop off their daughter and to change her clothes, which were soaked in blood. During his trial, Rivera testified that he never went into Sean's house that night, despite the fact that not only did he confess to police that he did, he confessed that he was the one that kicked in the bedroom door and fired the fatal bullet. On the stand, he claimed the confession came under intense police pressure and purported threats to his family. He named the shooter as being another member of the group of five that drove there that night from Fort Myers in an effort to steal large amounts of cash that they thought Sean kept in his home. He testified that he never even got out of the car, but rather stayed in the car parked outside of Sean's home and that he was under the impression that they were going to get in get the money, and come back out. He pointed the finger at Ben J. Hunt as being the shooter, stating that he had had a gun and acknowledged to him that he was the one that fired the fatal shot. Rivera basically sat on the stand and denied all of the accusations the prosecutor was throwing at him. He denied shooting Sean. He denied disposing of the 9mm gun by throwing it into the Everglades. He denied wearing the type of Nike shoes that left prints around Sean's house, and he denied the idea to burglarize the home was his. However, prosecutors played the detailed videotaped confession by Rivera, which included diagrams he drew for police showing where they were in Sean's home when he was shot. While on the stand, he completely backpedaled and said that he was only repeating back to investigators a story that they had told him and he was worried because they told him his family may be in danger. He claimed that police told him to tell his side of the story and they'll make sure nothing happens to his family, that they were telling him that he was going to go to jail and these guys were saying that he did it and that the confession was about his family and he feared for their safety. Prosecutors also pointed out that if Rivera was telling the truth in court under oath, that everything that he was telling to the police in that videotaped confession was a lie so why should he be believed? He acknowledged that he was properly Mirandized about his rights against self-incrimination before he laid out his confession. The prosecutor went on to pick apart Rivera's testimony by pointing out glaring inconsistencies, as well as entering into evidence a profanity-laden letter he wrote in an effort to get a witness to change her testimony. Prosecutors asked him straight out, You did shoot Sean Taylor, didn't you? Rivera replied, no, I did not. The prosecutor asked, you could benefit from lying, couldn't you? Rivera stated, I don't know, it's possible. The jury ended up finding Rivera guilty of second-degree murder and burglary with assault or battery while armed, having deliberated about 16 hours over four days. He had been facing first-degree murder charges, but... The jury chose to convict him of the lesser-included offense instead, having indicated to the court that they did have difficulty deciding on the fate of Rivera. In January of 2014, Rivera was sentenced to 57 and a half years in state prison. Without ever looking anyone in the eye, Rivera addressed the court, stating, I know my words may not mean much. Over the past six years, I learned that Mr. Taylor was a good man. 
I'm not making excuses for my decisions or actions. I'm truly sorry for your loss. In June of 2014, the next to stand trial for Sean's murder was Jason Mitchell, the mastermind of the burglary plan to rob Sean's home. His attorney argued that Mitchell should only be made to face the charges of burglary because he wasn't responsible for killing Sean, as Rivera is believed to have been the one to have pulled the trigger. But prosecutors disagreed, pointing out that this whole thing was set into motion by Mitchell, that all of this happened because of him, and he is the one to blame. It didn't matter whether or not they had planned or intended to kill Sean, the fact was that he died as a result of this burglary, and that makes them all responsible for it, and that Mitchell, in this trial, was to be treated as if he were the one to have pulled the trigger. At the center of all of this was Mitchell. If not for him, none of this would have ever happened. He did not testify in his own defense, and he too had given a detailed confession to the police, which was played for the court. The jury ended up convicting him of first-degree murder and armed robbery. He was immediately sentenced, given the mandatory term of life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 40 years for the robbery. The remaining three defendants, Ben J. Hunt, Charles Wardlow, and Timmy Brown, all ended up pleading guilty in their respective cases. Hunt was the first to come to a plea agreement in 2008. In exchange for a sentence of 29 years, he would be made to testify against the other four defendants when they would go to trial. He later tried to withdraw his plea deal, but then shortly thereafter gave up the effort and accepted the 29 years. In April of 2015, Wardlow, at that time 25 years old, entered his guilty plea for his part in Sean's murder. He was immediately sentenced to 30 years in prison. And lastly, that same month, Brown, who was only 16 at the time the murder took place, and the fifth and final defendant in the case, also entered his guilty plea. He agreed to serve a sentence of 18 years. And with that, all five of the young men charged with Sean's murder were convicted and sentenced. What a waste. What a waste of so many lives. Sean Taylor's legacy continued to live on after his death for those who loved him and played with him. In the next Redskins game following Sean's death, the team lined up with a 10-man defense, leaving the 11th spot open in honor of his absence, a tribute to their friend. In week 13 of that season, all players in the NFL had a number 21 decal on their helmets in a league-wide tribute to Sean. Subsequent to that, Sean became the only player ever voted posthumously into the Pro Bowl and the first player in any major sport to be chosen for an all-star team after death since 1986. And of the three Redskins who did go to that year's Pro Bowl game, they wore Sean's number 21 in his honor. Sean's high school, Gulliver Prep, retired his jersey number one. Sean's locker at Redskins Park was encased in plexiglass, and it remains the same way Sean left it the last time he was there. The Redskins organization 
also established a trust fund for his daughter. And just this past October, the University of Miami inducted Sean into its ring of honor, at which Sean's daughter, now 11 and a half years old, spoke about her dad and accepted the honor on his behalf. And with that, I will bring this special bonus vacation series episode of California Dreaming to a close. It's been a real departure for me to speak at such great lengths about football. It's very challenging for me, and I don't always know the ins and outs of the game. As a matter of fact, full disclosure, I had recorded most of this episode last night and found out that I misidentified Sean's defensive coordinator as the offensive coordinator. But it was too late, and I didn't want to re-record it. So if you caught that mistake and want to call me out on social media, I just called myself out. I get it. The position of safety is defensive, not offensive. Anyway, I promised my husband that I would make this episode for him, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with all of you. My husband's family hails from Miami, Florida. He's a passionate fan of Miami teams, especially the Dolphins. Feel free to send him your condolences regarding that. Sean Taylor's death struck a chord with my husband, as I'm sure it did with sports fans across the country. It's been 10 years, but certainly the sadness and pain never really goes away, especially those close to him. And our thoughts continue to be with his family, especially his young daughter, who never got to know him in this life. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.